Before I uh, begin the formal talk, I'd like to just say a few more words about practicing while the talk is happening. <clears throat> I'd like to encourage people to um, uh, begin by feeling your body sitting here. Putting, and it can be in a relaxed way. You don't have to be formal meditating, however you're sitting. But begin by feeling your body. And establishing your presence in the room in that way. Your connection to the living reality that is going to hear the, the talk. And then as you feel your body, let the breath start to show itself or come into the picture. Let it come to you in some way. So that the breath becomes part of what's here. And um, uh, one of my teachers used to say, if you stay in touch with the breath during the talk, that's the most important thing you can do. It's really to stay in touch with the, the living aliveness that's immediate, that's happening right now, and that's part of our practice. And then as you stay with the breath and body, and of course the, the breath is a body practice, we know that, it's in the mindfulness of the body category. <clears throat> um, as you stay with the body and the breathing, See what it's like to let the words come into the breathing, to come to you just like you let the breath come to you. Instead of having to go out to the words, instead of having to figure the words out, trust, trust your practice. And the talk will be part of your practice. And I, and I actually have a kind of nice example of this because it really happened for me last night in the talk, where I was, um, I came in, I was tired. And uh, Steve was starting to give the talk and I'm like sitting there, I'm thinking, okay, I just can't fall asleep, right? Because I was right next to him. You know, if I'd moved my chair further away, maybe I could have gotten away with it, but I, I didn't. And so I was trying to, mostly at first, I was trying not to fall asleep. And I'm, so I'm being with the kind of sleepiness and feeling it. And then as he's giving the talk, I was listening too. It was, you know, even though I was a little focused on not trying to fall asleep, I could still hear the talk. And then, you know, he started talking a little bit about investigating. And so I was kind of investigating my experience. And then he talked a little about energy and I started to feel a little energy and then joy. And I thought, oh, this is not bad at all. And, <laughs> And then, and then, and then, actually, I got concentrated during the talk. And what I'm suggesting is the talk is a place to practice. And the and the the words that are being said have a certain import, but the spirit of the words is even more important. And the spirit of all the words, all that we've been saying is pointing at you and pointing at your direct experience. 
pointing at your body and mind and this opportunity to pay attention. And so uh, that's the spirit of, of the talk and, and of listening to the talk. And then of course it'll come and go, the body and the breathing will come and go and then you'll reconnect at different times during the talk. But it's also in the spirit of um, what Philip was pointing us at in, from the get-go in his talk, which is the experiential nature of what we're doing here. That even though the talks are using a lot of concepts, and they're great concepts, beautiful concepts, important concepts, they're pointing at something experiential. Just as last night, Steve was pointing at the at the mind and certain qualities of the mind that when they're in balance are quite fruitful. So tonight I want to talk a little bit when I, I was thinking about, well, what am I doing? I'm doing a little bit of this and that tonight. And mostly I'm picking up some themes that I heard in the interviews over the last couple days. <clears throat> and I would like to talk a little about right effort. And maybe, maybe everything we've been saying has been in the service of the kind of effort or engagement that we make in this style of practice that we call concentration or samadhi practice. <clears throat> and one of the ways I, I think about this, and I think I might have said this in the first night, is it's the development of a skill or an art. It's a contemplative practice rather than an artistic practice, let's say. And the development of a skill of art or art has to do with um, uh, learning, and increasing mastery of that skill or art. And wh wherever you are on the continuum of learning, the learning is an increase in mastery. And so we talk about sometimes people are masters at something like a, you know, a dancer or a musician or a meditation teacher, you know, Zen Master Dogen, right? It's a common way to refer to certain teachers. Um, but this kind of skill or art that we're studying and learning um, and that we're learning to master, meaning become uh, fluent in, become skillful, become a uh, a skilled practitioner, it said in the dictionary, when I looked up master, as from mastery. A skilled practitioner. Mastery is not control. There's a difference between control and mastery. Mastery includes the understanding of a continual potential for learning more about what we're mastering. Somebody like Pablo Casals, the great cellist, practiced every day, every day. And there was, there was more to learn, even though he was already considered a master. 
Or if you see a great dancer or performer in some way, you can see their mastery. And also you can, if you really um, are tuned, you'll also see their mistakes. And you'll see how even that they're gracious with their mistakes, so it's not a problem. So really, most people won't even notice it. They'll, they'll just see the grace of the dance. But if you're another dancer, oh, you might see, well, they did this, or this happened, or they missed this. But it doesn't matter. Because they're, they're, um, the fullness of their engagement and the presence is what's revealed and is what comes across. And for us as practitioners then, what that, the way I think about that, the way it translates, is that we continue to learn and master and that we understand that our mistakes deepen our mastery, that our going off is not a problem, actually. It's, it's a living practice. It's a living art. And in ev- any living art, it's not static. Mastery is not a fixed, stamped control. <clears throat> so the mastery calls forth our responsiveness. And our responsiveness, when we're present with our experience uh, of sitting here, means what will come forth is our sensitivity, our intelligence, our creativity, our kindness in response to whatever the circumstances, whatever the conditions have brought forth moment by moment that we're working with, just to be present with the breathing. And in terms of this learning a skill in this way, we'll all go at our own rate. And part of mastery is understanding and respecting where we are. I think I I might have said this the first night, but Pema Chodron used that great quote, start where you are. And of course, that's true in each moment, right where you are. Uh, to, To master this kind of art is to really be sensitive to where we are in each moment, in each sitting, not imposing what happened from some other sitting, some other time, or what we think should happen, or even what the teachers have said, but to really see what's here and then responding with the intelligence, creativity, kindness, um, that, that is our birthright, that is in, innate in who and what we are. Now, part of this learning what what's implied and that we sometimes have um, we have a mixed relationship to is the goal of our of the skill that we're learning and even to say goal is sometimes a little taboo in spiritual circles it's like you're not supposed to have a goal anybody here not have some goal for being here? Really? uh, Most people have a goal, have an intention, uh, are pointed in a certain direction of something they're seeking. 
And I, I call that a goal. And I think goals are actually fine in practice. But I think what's, what's uh, problematic is if we put the goal before the practice. Not understanding that the practice is a medium that will take us to our goal. And so I was thinking about it today and I thought, oh yeah, if you want to go to Los Angeles, it's good to get a map and see, okay, where's Los Angeles? And you take a look and there's Los Angeles. Then maybe, or maybe here's a better way to do it, GPS. You're in your car, you've got a new car, it's got a GPS. So you punch in Los Angeles and they give you a picture of Los Angeles. That's your goal. Now, if you look at the picture of Los Angeles, you won't get to your goal. If you start driving and you're watching, oh, there's Los Angeles and it's a picture, you're in trouble, right? You're going to drive off the road. The way to get to the goal is not to look at the goal, is, is to understand there's a goal and then see we, we have to actually start driving here in Woodacre, if we're going to get to the goal of Los Angeles, that we have to pay attention to what's right in front of us in order to realize our goal. And it's a paradox that we have to forget about the goal to get to the goal. And it's true in terms of samadhi, that if we're thinking about what that composure is going to be like, or what that absorption is going to be like, or we're remembering what it was like some other time, we're actually not going to get to our goal of absorption or samadhi or right concentration. But if we start to, as Steve was saying, meet each moment, then we can start to drive the body and mind to the Los Angeles of Samadhi, right? We stay on the road, and the road is our, our GPS, our, when, you, when you get the directions, that is our body and mind and what's happening here. And that's what will take us to our goal. Is that basically clear? Is that okay? Okay. <clears throat> and, you know, the Buddha had a goal. He had the goal of realization. He actually dreamed of a realization of freedom that people said was not possible. And he followed his intuition. He, don't, he didn't follow some idea he made up about what it was. He followed his intuition that a freedom was possible until he realized his goal. And he did it by sitting with himself and his direct experience. And of course, as I said, that n the night of his enlightenment, when he sat down for that final stage, he did this practice of mindfulness of breathing. And it's said that he, he achieved enlightenment from, from fourth jhana, from the fourth absorption. And a, an interesting point that I like to add about um, uh, his mastery 
is that it didn't end at enlightenment. That the Buddha continued to practice mindfulness of breathing and encourage people to practice that till the end of his life. And even as he died, he was practiced doing this practice. So it said. Now, the goal that we've been aiming at, that we are aiming at, that we're exploring, that we're investigating, that we're gathering our resources and stabilizing our mind in order to, to explore is right concentration. Now here's a, here's a sutta definition of right concentration. <clears throat> there is the case where a bhikkhu, a practitioner, quite withdrawn from sensuality, quite withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, enters and remains in first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. With the stilling, calming or receding, fading, with the stilling of directed thoughts and evaluations, one enters and remains in the second jhana, rapture and pleasure born of composure, unification of awareness free from directed thought and evaluation, internal assurance. And then with the fading of rapture, one remains in equanimity, is mindful and alert, and senses pleasure with the body. One enters and remains in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare equanimous and mindful, one has a pleasurable abiding. And with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, as with the earlier disappearance of elation and distress, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana, purity of equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor pain. This is called right concentration. So this is a sutta definition. This is the definition for when you look in the Eightfold Path, this is the definition of right concentration. It's jhana or dhyana, which was taken and translated as Chan, Zen, all the same word. And, and for our purposes here, it's simply absorption. And it's a, it's a, a, a beautiful state of mind. It's a beautiful state of mind. And it's that unification that we talked about Right? When, when the mind is unified using an object like the breath, the mind becomes collected, composed, purified, wieldy, imperturbable. <clears throat> um, we don't tend to use the word jhana a lot in our tradition. And there are, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, all of us were trained pretty much originally, I believe, in the Mahasi Sayadaw uh, school. And Mahasi school, jhana was thought not to be so important, let's say. That they, uh, often um, jhana sometimes, depending on the school, could be thought to be dangerous, too pleasurable, 
people would get caught in it. People get attached to it. Also, it can be, there are different kinds of jhana that are taught, meaning there are different kinds of absorption. And so some absorption, like if you read the Vasudhimaga, one of the great commentaries on the whole Buddhist teaching, they describe jhanas where there's no, no sense awareness at all. And the jhanas are so secluded that they're not useful. They're not helpful. They're not a mind that's pliable and malleable and can be used in the service of insight. And so there's been some controversy about it. Um, In my own practice, I didn't... I actually now know that I went into jhana in the first retreat I ever did with Jack and Joseph and Sharon many, many years ago. And they didn't exactly know what it was. I didn't know what it was. I remember talking to Joseph afterwards and he was quizzing me and I was telling him what happened. And um, <clears throat> finally he said, well, I, 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 I was like, am I going to be like this forever? Because what, what happened was, and what can happen with jhana, is the mind gets so collected... And I'll just give you a little of my experience, and it may be different for each person because it seems to be that people have different jhanas at times or depending on what system they study in. But in my experience, it became so collected and the jhanic factors that Sally talked about became stronger. The aiming and sustaining became very strong, very, very, very solid in the sense of they were really available, the aiming and sustaining and the being with. And then the resultant factors of the pity, the rapture, and, and, the, uh, and the happiness, and the uh, equanimity became stronger, 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 like ripe fruit, like a fruit ripens. And, and at that point, it's kind of, at least in my experience, was so uh, engaging that I didn't care about jhana. I was happy with what was happening. And then at some point it became so right, it, it, it dropped. And it's like consciousness, you could say it dropped or it, it, it just, boom, it landed. And it was steady. It was like, oh, now the mind stayed. And it doesn't mean it stayed permanently or it doesn't, didn't stay forever, but... But there was a different level of composure, of collectedness, of, of, um, uh, of unification. And the, and the sense of it was, oh, the mind stays. Now I could, I can, I'm here. Boom. In a very strong way. And then, and then, of course, those are all conditioned and it lasts for a certain amount of time. But it could last for a number of hours right? At least in my case, some hours at times. And then, it, and then there was more access. Then there was more access to like first jhana or second jhana or third jhana. And then learning about that, learning about that terrain. Um, um, but, the, but the system that I learned in was not in the Mahasi system. It was from Ajahn Lee Dharmadharo, and through uh, um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. 
And it was a slightly different understanding. And here's what's tricky about the differences in the Dharma, at least from my perspective, is they're all true, even though they don't agree with one another. They, they both work. And they work because they have their own coherent intelligence, logos, paradigm, and they lead to freedom. So for our purposes here, mostly we're focusing on the sense of unification and the movement towards this composure collecting. And there's a beautiful, beautiful simile the Buddha uses that I'd like to read you about this kind of collectedness that he describes in First Jhana. And he uses a number of beautiful images for Jhana, for this kind of um, uh, level of being... Uh, Uh, unified with our experience. So he says again, withdrawn from sensual pleasure, withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, one enters and remains in first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. One permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills his very body with the rapture and the pleasure born from withdrawal. Just as if a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water so that their ball of bath powder, saturated, moistenlated, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Even so, the bhikkhu, the practitioner, permeates this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. There is nothing of one's entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. And so there's a pleasure that comes with concentration, with composure, with collectedness, with unification. And there is a place for this pleasure as part of practice. I think of it as the wise use of pleasure in practice. And people were bringing this into the interviews already. There is a sense of when we connect, when we get very connected with the breathing or very centered in the breath, or we start to feel the um, um, uh, the mind starts to calm and feel at ease, and there's a sense of um, uh, a kind of effortless effort that can sometimes happen, or a sense of being equanimous, even with the uh, the various um, uh, phenomena that may be. Uh, at the perimeter of experience as we stay with the breath, um, that it's pleasurable. Or the word, uh, or it could be um, uh, feel nourishing or fulfilling. Sometimes it feels healing. It feels like we're being bathed in, this, in, the, in the breath and that sense of the mind at ease or at one with itself. And the breath itself can be delicious. It can be feel very rich, very full, very um, uh, fulfilling. It can feel very delicate, very uh, exquisite. 
And we don't have to be afraid of enjoying these experiences if we're skillful with the pleasure that's here. And, and, and as the Buddha is suggesting, it's really that we breathe it in. We breathe in the pleasure. We breathe in the sense of nourishment. We breathe in the uh, enjoyment or the delight or the happiness that's here. And so it becomes, it's a little, sometimes I think of it like having a soup. And we're, we're putting certain ingredients in. And the first two ingredients are the mindfulness and the breath. And the attentiveness with the breath. And, when we're, and, then, and then we're also including everything that happens. So we're not in conflict with everything. We're meeting each moment, but we're meeting it, as Sally was saying, by... Um, by preferencing the breathing. And so we're stirring in a certain way. We're stirring in a certain direction. And then there's the mindfulness, and then there's the breathing, and then um, some really good spices come in. Delight, enjoyment, satisfaction, sense of peacefulness, sense of equanimity, a sense of delicacy, a sense of refinement. And we can include those, we can enjoy those, we can utilize, those can be helps to us to bring us closer to the breath. They can, the pleasure that comes, let it draw you in, let it take you in. And one of the concerns here, and this is like one of the concerns about jhana that I mentioned, is it'll be too pleasurable, it'll be too good you'll get attached. Well, it's a little, the, the learning here, and I, I'll tell people at a certain point, I'll say, oh, go ahead, get attached. Just go ahead, you know, because otherwise people do this. They do this, they avert. Like, okay, I'm not going to get attached. So they keep a distance from the experience. And that's not skillful either. And so I'm not saying attached, I'm saying I'm not saying attachment is skillful ultimately, but maybe you need to get attached to see what's the difference between being attached and being aversive as opposed to being present with the experience and the delight of it or the goodness of it and the wholesomeness of it. And so the Buddha used a, a, had another uh, story when he talked about the wise use of pleasure and it relates to his enlightenment. And he'd, he'd been, everybody here know, he was, a, he was an ascetic for many years. And he was, as it was the Buddha's nature, actually, let me go back. First, he was a hedonist. Everybody know that? Buddha, total hedonist. Prince, lived a princely life, enjoyed everything a prince would enjoy at that time. Hedonism. And then he, the pendulum swung, and he became an ascetic. He said, okay, that doesn't work. I'm going to cut off all these pleasurable feelings. And he said, he said when he was a practitioner, he said, uh, whatever a practitioner, he said this, whatever a practitioner has felt in the past or will feel in the future or feels now painful, racking, piercing feeling due to striving, it can equal but not exceed what he felt what he'd been through. So whatever you've been through, right on this retreat so far, it's been difficult. The Buddha's been there. He was there and beyond. 
beyond. He was into it. <laughs> so, but then he said, but by this grueling penance, I have attained no distinction worthy of the, of no, of the noble one's knowledge and vision. Might there be another way to enlightenment? And then he had a thought. And I always love that he, he copped to that, that he had a thought, because it means thoughts are okay. <laughs> I had a thought of a time when my father was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of the, a rose apple tree. He was in the orchard. He says, quite secluded from sensual desires, secluded from unwholesome things, I had entered upon and abode in the first meditation. This is first jhana which is accompanied by thinking and exploring with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. And I thought, might this be the way to enlightenment? And then following up with that memory, there came the recognition that this was the way to enlightenment. And then I thought, why am I afraid of such pleasure? It is a pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual desires and unwholesome things. And then I thought, I am not afraid of such pleasure, for it has nothing to do with sensual desire and unwholesome things. So this is the Buddha describing his discovery of a practice of meditation that was not ascetic, that leads to enlightenment, and it was pleasurable. And he didn't, and that means we don't have to be afraid of that. We can, there may be a way to enlightenment that includes uh, pleasure. Now, if I left you there, I'd be doing you a disservice though, okay? Because although I want to really encourage, I want to encourage, when you, when you tune into the breath, when the mind gets unified in that way and you feel a kind of fullness or satisfaction or enjoyment, include that as part of the meditation as you stay with the breathing. Bring it into the soup of the breath and mind together there and see what happens. Let it, let it pull you in even closer See how pleasurable it can be? Maybe it'll be really pleasurable. Maybe it'll be way pleasurable. And then we'll learn something more. We'll keep learning. But another piece of this practice that's very important and very important to understand in terms of right effort is kind of a nice corollary with the understanding of the wise use of pleasure. And that's that this is a practice of purification. And what that means uh, in practice is that the clarifying of the mind in this way, the mind and heart in this way, uh, by the unifying and the, and, the, and the gathering and the composing and the centering in this moment with the body and the breath, has an alchemical process to it that we call purification. And that alchemical process will draw forth more and more of what hinders the mind's capacity to be unified or what obscures 
the heart's capacity to be one or the uh, it will it will reveal the, what are called the, the hindrances or the obstacles or the defilements or the um, veils to that unified mind. And what that means is it'll bring up stuff. Something Somebody said, wow, something came up from 20 years ago. I thought I was done with that and came up with some power today. And I was surprised. That is not a mistake. That is not doing something wrong. That is part of the process of purification. So even as we go deeper, even as we get closer with the breath, more intimate with the breathing, um, at certain times, the obstacles to being close to the breath will then come forward. And that is part of the process. And if we understand the bigger picture of the process of purification, then it's a win-win situation. In other words, the difficulties, the hindrances, the obstacles, there's an opportunity to purify or clarify them with our mindfulness, our awareness, our presence, our kindness, our sensitivity, our creativity as we respond appropriately moment by moment to what's here. And so then even what looks like the obstacles become the road to our goal of right concentration. They're not, a, they're not actually, oh, we've gone off. No, this is what the road brings. And if we understand that, then it doesn't mean, I don't mean to be Pollyanna and say, oh, it's all good and it's wonderful and great. I'm glad this hatred came forward or now this <laughs> agitation or this grief or whatever it is. No, I'm not, I don't mean it's enjoyable. But from the, from the seed of wisdom, we understand, yes, this is what's here. This is what the road is right now. This is what we need to attend to. We don't have to add the second arrow of feeling bad about it or judging ourselves or thinking it's a mistake even. And so then we have a sense of the path of samadhi, we could say, the path of samadhi. And that path has two important trajectories that we want to follow. Two important trajectories. One trajectory that we've been talking about is continuity. Continuity over time, through time. And it's why I'm encouraging you to stay with the breath a little bit, even right now. Stay with the body and the breathing as you move through the day to stay with it, even lightly, even lightly. It's not going to be the same staying with generally as it is on the cushion, right? Like right now, it'll probably be a lighter sense of breath for most people. For some people, it can be very concentrated, but, but any contact is good. And the same as you move through your day, both in the sitting in the walking, in the in-between, in the eating, in the bathroom, in the brushing the teeth, in the bed. That continuity is an important through line to encourage in a relaxed way, but in a somewhat diligent way. The other 
line that we want to follow. So we've got the, the line, the horizontal line of continuity. And then we have the vertical line of intimacy. And the intimacy is about being coming closer to the direct experience of the breath. And, and uh, uh, Steve said it last night. He said, uh, you know, we think we know what the breath is. Wrong. Right? Actually, we don't know what the breath is. And one of the best attitudes we can take, most skillful attitudes, is the attitude of discovery or curiosity. Almost like, okay, I don't know what a breath is. Let me feel this breath now. And discover it now. Rather than imposing our memories, our ideas, our concepts, our beliefs, onto the present moment's experience. Because the breath in this moment is totally fresh. It's totally alive. And it's totally mysterious at a certain level. And the question is, how intimate can we be with this alive experience? And what does it reveal as we come closer to it? And so part of the pleasure, personally, that I find is in coming, being very intimate with the, the actuality, with the, um, uh, with the texture of the breath, with the sensations of the breathing, with the mind's mingling with that experience. Because like that bath woman's ball of powder, it's sprinkling the water with the powder so that it totally is full of, it's juicy. That's possible with the breath, that we can mingle the mind and the breath, letting the breath, letting the mind saturate the breath, letting the breath fill the mind, and then seeing what happens, seeing, well, what is that experience that becomes less and less defined by concept and more and more revealed as a living revelation of this breath. Now, these two through lines, right, the through line, the horizontal line of continuity, and that line of moving closer, and even what we, we talked about, even what I mentioned in the first talk about the, uh, um, um, uh, the, the collapsing of the subject-object duality at a certain point, of being so close that the breath is just being known in the experience of breath, and there's no knower particularly there. There's no gap between the direct experience and the knowing of it is, is totally, un, becomes unified. It takes some practice and it takes some work, <laughs> which is not a word we've been emphasizing this week so far. You notice we've been like, take it easy. Anybody notice that? You know, don't don't strive and don't don't get tense and don't work too hard and you know let the breath come to you and 
it's actually, it's very skillful to do that. It's very, very skillful. But it's not the only instruction. So I want to add a little bit to this instruction. And I want to talk about, uh, remember I said, swimming Alcatraz, start slow, finish slow. In the middle, make your push. We're in the middle now. (laughs) Okay? We're in the middle. So we've started slow, kind, gentle, a lot of loving kindness infused in the, in the spirit of the practice. Beautiful. Very skillful to start that way. And we'll end that way too. And we'll continue in the middle, but we're going to make a push. And this is where it gets tricky for people because most of us, I couldn't even find a, a better word than push exactly. I could say be more diligent or more ardent. Those are a little better. Maybe those are good words. Maybe we're going to let our ardency, our, our wholeheartedness, really express itself now in the practice. That's a little better way to say it. But really what happens is when I say, okay, here we are, let's go, people get tense. People get tight. People strain. People strive. And people are very harsh on themselves. Almost none of which is really so helpful. Mastery means learning how to push and stay relaxed. Learning how to be uh, um, intense, but not tense. Learning how to, um, uh, I mean, even if you're pumping iron, if you don't know how to relax at the right times and breathe at the right times, you'll hurt yourself. But if you know how to do it, if you know how to use your body, and use your breath to support you, you can do it in a relaxed way, even though you're straining in it to a certain extent. And so we want to see if we can discover the mastery or the skillfulness to begin to um, uh, turn, turn up the heat a little in our practice. And it means a little bit from right where you are, not some idea where you should be, but right where you are both in these two, two lines, continuity and intimacy with the breathing. And um, as I was talking about it today with people in the interviews, I, I had one of the images that came is of a, of a loving uh, parent who has to be firm at times with the child. And that firmness is not a harshness, it's not a meanness, it's not, it's not disrespectful to the child, but it's firm, it's strong, it's adult, and it says, okay, it's time to go to sleep. And then it helps the child, and the child wants to go run, nope, you can't run around now. Wants to go run around. Nope, you can't run around, you've got to sit here now. Oh no, you know, the child's overtired. And the parent is parents firm, but the parent is loving. And sometimes we're gonna to need to do that with our own minds. Probably more than once during the retreat. But to start to learn how to work with ourselves in that way, to bring a certain kind of steadfastness and decisiveness 
to practice in addition to all not in lieu in not to get rid of everything we've done so far but in addition as another of the of the colors in our palette of skillful means for how we can help support ourselves staying present over time and getting closer another way we could talk about this since I like um, um, actually before I go there and the the spirit of this has to do with the urgency that we've talked about the urgency of practice and you all know it we're all dying you know I mean that's the simplest truth where it's all we know that our lifespan is limited we know that the amount of time we have to practice is limited and so we want to make good use of it. But we don't want to hear that and then get tight and scared. No, I got to, no. It's, no, we want to take that and see how skillful can we be with that truth of impermanence and apply it so that we, and this is what they used to say in the early days, in the old days when I was first practicing, they'd say, oh, practice as if your hair is on fire. And I love that. You know, I was a young guy and, you know, I had a little attitude, so I thought that was very cool. It's not for everybody, that quote, okay? (laughs) But what's more interesting to me is I found, many years later, I found out where the original quote came from, which was like, I don't know, 2,000 years ago. Same quote, only it came from uh, uh, Dao Zen, a Chinese master who said, when the mind itself is peaceful and pure, then all that is needed is bold advance as if to save your head from fire. And so here's one of the pointers for really, you make your push. First you make, you do everything you can to collect and gather and unify and be present and let that deepen. And then you can be more, you know, a little more decisive at times. You'll notice that that you can be with the breath, but you can be 20% with the breath or 50% or 70% or 90%. And then when you really start to see that you're really with the breath and you're really there, then really make your push. When the mind itself is peaceful and pure, then all that is needed is bold advance as if to save your head from fire. And so there are different times and places and ways to push or to be firm or to be decisive. And there's a place for it for all of us. If you find yourself getting tense or tight, that's not what I'm suggesting is a skillful means. And... I'll say this, sometimes you need to do that to see that doesn't work. You you need to do it. And sometimes you need to do it, even that, to see, oh, I've had a self-limiting idea about what I think I can do. And this is mostly true for everybody. That we we have a limited understanding of our potential, both to be present and to organize ourselves in that direction. And so sometimes it's important to try too hard and then find that middle way 
that works for you. And all of this is in the, is in the spirit of ex- exploration and learning and mastery. Because masters know how to make mistakes and learn from their mistakes. So I hope I'm able to convey this sense of push as skillful means and as appropriate. The other way, I love the Zen story. Zen student comes to the Zen master uh, and says, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? And instead of saying liberation or freedom or enlightenment or awakening, the Zen master says, an appropriate response What's the goal of a lifetime of practice? An appropriate response. And it's a, it's a brilliant understanding. Meaning that when we're here, present, and, we're, um, and the heart, mind is functioning with its intelligence and creativity and kindness um, that it can, and sensitivity, it can respond to the circumstances the, the conditions that have arisen appropriately. And appropriate means sometimes backing off, sometimes sitting up straight, sometimes being more fierce, sometimes just being kind, sometimes being more uh, receiving. That there is no one fixed way to deepen practice. But real practice happens fresh in each moment. Both the experience of the breath is fresh and the mind and heart that receives, knows, responds is fresh. Because reality itself is fresh moment by moment. I'll end with a quote from Suzuki Roshi. He says, when we practice, when we practice, our mind always follows our breathing. When we inhale, the air comes into the inner world. When we exhale, the air goes out into the outer world. The inner world is limitless and the outer world is also limitless. We say inner world or outer world but actually there is just one whole world. In this limitless world the air comes in and goes out like someone passing through a swinging door. If you think I breathe the I is extra. There is no you to say I. What we call I is just the swinging door that moves when we inhale and exhale. It just moves, that is all. When your mind is pure and calm enough to follow this movement, there is nothing, no I, no world, no mind, no body, just the swinging door. So when we practice, all that exists is the movement of the breathing, but we are aware of this movement. But to be aware of the movement does not mean to be aware of your small sense of self. 
but rather your universal nature, your Buddha nature. And this is one of the gateways for us, one of the doorways to discover the truth, the Dharma, the Dharma that's sitting right in your seat, sitting, breathing, being aware, waking up here, moment by moment. Let's sit together for a minute. We say inner world or outer world, but actually there is just one whole world, one limitless world. you for your presence. We have a half an hour to continue to breathe as we walk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.